Hey out there, welcome to the October 2020 episode of Live from the Pat Conroy Literary Center. I'm your host, Jonathan Hout, the Executive Director here at our nonprofit Conroy Center in beautiful Beaufort, South Carolina, where we're just a couple of weeks away from holding our annual Pat Conroy Literary Festival, an event which first began as Pat's 70th birthday party back in October of 2015. This year's festival will be virtual, which means you can attend from anywhere, and you can learn all about that on our website, patconroyliterarycenter.org, or on our very handy Facebook page. My guest on the show tonight, John Lane, was with us here in Beaufort as recently as last year's Conroy Festival, and John was also a key part of that original Pat Conroy at 70 Festival back in 2015. John's excellent first novel, Fate Moreland's Widow, was published in the Story River Books fiction imprint at USC Press, which Pat and I created together. And his newly published second novel, Whose Woods These Are, takes us back into the fictional Morgan County, South Carolina. It was also the setting of his first novel as well. John is an environmentalist, a memoirist, poet, and novelist who recently retired as professor of environmental studies and director of the Goodall Center for Environmental Studies at Wofford College in Spartanburg, South Carolina, in our upstate. He's also one of the co-founders of the Hub City Writers Project, an absolute gem of the literary landscape of the South, which has since grown to include a nonprofit bookstore and award-winning publisher. John was inducted, or as he likes to say, induced into our state's literary <laughs> hall of fame, the South Carolina Academy of Authors, in 2014. Among his armload of book awards, his selected poems, Abandoned Quarry, won the Southeastern Independent Bookseller Alliance Poetry Book Award. His nonfiction book, Coyote Settles the South, was named a finalist and nature book of uncommon merit by the John Burroughs Society. And his aforementioned first novel, Fate Moreland's Widow, was named an independent publisher, Book Awards Silver Finalist. John is also a contributing writer to an obscure, rarely mentioned anthology called Our Prince of Scribes. Writers remember Pat Conroy, now the winner of 15 Book Awards. And it's my absolute pleasure to welcome John to the show. Thanks so much for being with me this evening. Thank you, Jonathan. It's great to be in Buford, even if it's a digital um, telephone visit. Yeah, we miss you here in the low country. And I will confess something, and I've probably mentioned this on the show a couple times. Despite the, the title Live from the Pot Conroy Literary Center, I am usually coming live from my own home library. But because I just <laughs> finished up an online virtual program here at the center, I am for the first time on a podcast, actually not only in the Conroy Center, but actually seated at Mr. Conroy's desk for our interview tonight. That's, nice spot to that's be. That's very exciting. <laughs> I Very think exciting. Pat would approve. And if he doesn't, he'll let me know at some point in the evening, I'm sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> so first and foremost, congratulations on having a second novel out, Whose Woods These Are, is newly published by our friends at Mercer University Press. And it is sort of a, a literary mystery novel told from four points of view, uh, four perspectives, unfolding over the course of a single day, that day being Thanksgiving, so congratulations on finally writing the great American Thanksgiving novel that people have been asking for for <laughs> generations. Um, but I assume you did not set out to, in fact, write a Thanksgiving novel. And I'd love for you to tell me a little bit about where the, where the book really did begin. What is the origin story of the novel? Well, the origin story begins on a trip um, over to do a hiking trip with my friend Drew Lanham. I know he's a good friend of the Conroy Center. Um, and Indeed. I was headed to Greenville with a friend of mine, um, and he's a, my friend's a hunter and has 
had owned a whole bunch of family land and hunted on it for centuries. And we were, we were driving past this land and he started telling me a couple of crazy stories about encounters he'd had on the land um, connected with hunting. And I'm not a hunter, but I've got lots of friends who hunt, including Drew. And um, I started hearing this story and in my mind started forming this image. You know, a lot of writers talk about poems or novels or short stories beginning with an image or a, a voice. And I had this image of this kind of deranged um, old man wandering in the woods. And, um, and, I, and I started thinking about that and wondering how he got there and what happened to him and what was going to happen to him. And, um, you know, hunting season's always in the fall. And so when I, sp- when I got back that day, I, I started writing. I started typing um, this story. And the title I put at the top was The Last Stand, meaning deer stand. But, um, <laughs> but um, it began with this, this um, man in the woods. And then quickly, I had an idea about a, um, a, a about an incident and a, and a and a woman being involved. And she was a she was a county cop, and she was sitting in a little cricket parking lot. And that after that first day was over, I had about four thousand words, and I had a whole scene created with this cop in this little cricket parking lot getting a call that her husband, I mean her boyfriend, who was the father of her child was sort of a suspect in this missing man. And I went, wow, there's trouble there. I'm going to have a good time with this. And then I just rolled with it. There was indeed a lot of trouble to be found in the woods of Morgan County. And, uh, so those characters, old Doc, uh, who is our, is our old man hunter, and Caddy Gallagher, uh, who is the, the deputy sheriff, those emerged for you first of all, that those are the, the two folks who, appeared fully formed to you where yeah. did the others yeah. come from where did the rest of the cast well you know i had to figure out who was her boyfriend who was who was the guy that didn't marry her that left her with this kid and and how how did she become this um how did she become this deputy sheriff and um i knew she was probably in her mid-20s and um and that's how jay the character of jay spelled j-a-e um came came to be he was the he was the man, the young hunter in the woods who encounters old Doc. And then I knew that if um, if there was um, this incident and she was a deputy sheriff, there had to be a sheriff. And sheriffs are such a great Southern tradition <laughs> that I, I knew I had a potential for a, a good, particularly since my friend Ron Rash um, has such good luck with such characters. I, I figured that I was going to have to have a sheriff. And I wanted him to be not a... Um, not a modern sheriff, but I wanted him to be a sheriff who sort of was almost like a, le- a leftover Andy of Mayberry sheriff. And so I knew that he, he was not going to be a combat vest wearing um, SUV driving sheriff. He was going to have this kind of, oh, it's going to be okay. We're going to find everything's going to work out all right. Um, and those were the characters I started with. Um, old Doc, um, Jay, Caddy, um, and the sheriff, Sheriff Howard. And then the, the final voice, there are four voices, as you said, that, that rotate through the story. And the final voice came when a friend of mine um, read the manuscript and said, you've got to have a good villain. You've got to have a good villain in this story. And you've got this guy in the background, this stepson of, the, of old Docs. 
and you got to bring him forward and give him a voice. And that's when Darren Pagano appeared, and he ended up being one of my favorite characters. He is a lot of fun to hate, and it's pretty easy to hate it uh, from introduction <laughs> well, you know, all the way gotta, through. Uh, you know, um, you you helped me a lot since you were the editor of my first novel. You helped me a lot with um, Angus Morrison. I mean, Angus um, Angus McCain in the first novel, yeah. and he's such a great villain. Um, and um, having a good villain is really important, I think. Got to be a villain that's got lot- some. I'm sorry. No, go ahead, John, please. No, I was going to say, it's got to be a villain that has some sympathy, though. Um, you gotta, you got to like him a little bit. So I, I hope I pulled that off with Darren. I know I did with Angus. Yeah, certainly with Angus. And I would say so with Darren as well. There, there are those moments that soften him that give us, uh, certainly because we hear it in his own voice, that give, give, him, give us a glimpse into his headspace and, and where his loyalties and his concerns are, and his anxieties too, for that matter. Um, yeah. So uh, there, there's certainly another character, and it, it sounds like it may have been the one that uh, emerged to you first, and that's the woods themselves that are so central to this novel. Yeah. And I'd love for you to to uh, take us into those woods with a reading, if you would. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to start off by reading uh, just a few paragraphs from the beginning of the book. The book, um, the, the structure of the book is there's a third person section at the beginning called the woods, and then you drop into the middle with all the four voices um, that are named. Each section is, has the name of the character at the top of it, and then you drop back out. Oh, and it's um, it's first person present the the first section is third person past and then um, this is for all you fiction nerds out there um the first section is person past and then it drops into thanksgiving morning and thanksgiving evening which are all these rotating um character um depositions i like to call them and then um it drops back out of that into third person past with a final section called once again the woods And so this is from the first section, The Woods. I'm going to read just three paragraphs, just a minute or so, a minute and a half. The first woods grew up far back in time, ancient as the last ice age, back beyond any notion we would call now. For eons, the woods, most of it deciduous, cantilevered, stable, rolled unbroken in every direction, untroubled except by an occasional cataclysmic storm or raging lightning-sparked wildfire, the space undulating in hilly ridges and deep-cut floodplains someday to be called the Piedmont. If the woods were steeped in anything back then, it was deep rot, and rot stained the the loamy shadows almost a rainforest, and filled the air with a fecund scent. To have entered those woods would have been to give way to a place of impenetrable density, a green wall of entwined smilax, poison ivy, muscadine, Virginia creeper, and cross vine. The old pre-settlement woods had a reverent quality to them, as deep woods always do. But the recent woods weren't such a grove, sacred or otherwise. There was something more undersized about them that a word like grove did not embrace. By post-settlement times, the woods were a remnant, 
what was left of the remaining upland southern hint of primeval forest, the big woods itself, little patches of it miraculously surviving and emerging whole into the present every morning, like it was the first day of creation, this one stretching over sections of two full USGS quads, if what you understand best is maps. The woods could still seem vast except for places where there were a few game trails, some widened by the regular treading of Jay Mitchell, who now, generations later, hunted there almost daily. So you get Jay there, and like you said before, it's almost like a prose poem. It is, yeah. And it's uh, as I said before we began. It really reads to me like a prose poem, but with the language, the very specific language of environmentalist and a nature writer, but unfolding with the cadence of of a poet. And we get those kinds of passages too, albeit in sort of a rougher form, in uh, the the chapters that unfold from Jay's perspective. He really does have yeah. a poet's heart, and in, in the, the way in which he interacts with the world, the natural world, the woods specifically. And at one point, uh, I think this is in Jay's voice, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe he says, the woods are full of mysteries and surprises. That's what makes them the woods, which is just a simple <laughs> two yeah. lines, but it, it speaks to so much about uh, what that world is. I, was, uh, yeah. I got to do a, a virtual program with uh, Bruce Filer recently, the author of Life is in the Transition through the Southern Festival of Books. And we wandered off on a tangent to talk about fairy tales. And he said, well, you know, in fairy tales, the woods is really where everything happens. That's where the real danger always is. And people never come out of the woods the same way they go in. And I was wow. thinking about that in the, in the context of your book as well. That's, that's very much what happens in the woods. Nobody comes out exactly the same as they go in. Wow. So when this, when this <laughs> they try to was, get out, though. <laughs> <laughs> they do. They try real hard to get out. Uh, did you always know these woods were going to be in Morgan County? Did you always know you were going to go back into the landscape of your first novel to tell this story? Yeah, Jonathan, when I wrote, and you know this story, nobody else does, but, you know, I've been writing novels for since the um, mid late 70s. And um, I had an agent, and I wrote two novels, and neither one of them was accepted and, you know, went around New York, and everybody rejected them. Um, and, um, but I kept trying. I kept, I'm like that guy in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I kept building that castle, and it kept falling back into the swamp. <laughs> but um, but um, from, from the very beginning of my life as a novelist, I've always been fascinated with how Faulkner built build a novel, build a land, build a place um, in his novel. And I always wanted to have every novel take place over a sweep of time in one mythical place. And I did not want it to be the real Spartanburg County, but I wanted it to be a sort of like Spartanburg County enough so that somebody might recognize some parts of it, but might see that I've changed and altered things in other ways. And I also wanted to follow families through time like Faulkner did. And so um, the McCains appear in Fate Mullen's Widow. Fate Mullen's Widow, as you remember, is set in the 30s and the 80s. And this oh, book, I think is. of it, being mm-hmm. set about 2015. Um, and I've got two other novel drafts, three now, drafts of novels that are set in, set in the 
eighties with flat the eighteen eighties with flashbacks to the seventeen eighties in Morgan County, and then I've got one set in the year nineteen seventy, um, and I've got another set um, in the um, early two thousand. So when I finish with those, and I, I think that I'm, um, I'm, um, Mercer's pretty committed to me. They're at least going to bring out. Um, Fate Morgan's widow, or Fate Morgan's window, as I sometimes call it. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, they're they're going to bring out Fate Morgan's widow in paperback next January. So, um, so it will still um, have a life, and they're going we're going to do similar covers so that it will tie into whose woodsies are. And I'm hoping that I can convince them to look at the other novels and keep the um, keep the story going. That would be fantastic. Uh, Conroy's challenge to writers is always to give me a world, give me a place that feels so real, so fully formed that I'm disappointed when I have to leave it. And Morgan County seems like it's fully formed to you in that way. It certainly feels that way to me as the reader. But, and it is, you know, as you say, your sort of, your approach to uh, Faulkner's Yachna Patafa. On the show last month, I had Valerie Sayers, and we had a very similar conversation about Due East, which is her fictional universe based closely on Beaufort in the 1960s, but how she sort of imagines it changes over time, too. And to to have that place that is always unfolding in your imagination, I wonder about that for for you as a writer. Does it feel like stories are just happening in Morgan County, and every, every so often you get to show up and chronicle them, or do you feel as though you've got to kind of push them along and make them happen? Well, I, I keep my I keep my ears open. As you know, the the story of Fate Morland's widow was one that Betsy found in a archive, um, a one one newspaper article. I took that one mm-hmm. newspaper article and I said, I don't want to know anything really more about it. I just want to spin the story out of out of this one article. And this one, I think, came out of um, um, the stories I heard about the the conflicts about land. Um, and hunting and things like that. And so I've always got my, my eyes open and my ears trained to stories in the play. Um, and, um, um, and they're just, as you know, I mean, they're, they're stories under every rock. And, um, and, um, and um, if you just listen, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna find them. Um, the thing that always fascinated me when I was growing up is, um, um, I mean, growing into a writer, not really growing up, but the last probably 30 years or 40 years is um, I could not figure out why Spartanburg didn't have any novels about it. Um, there are good novelists here, you know, um, Michelle Stone and um, 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 Susan DeColby, um, um, Tom, Tom McConnell, great novelists. Um, I'm missing some people, but yeah. there are great novelists mm-hmm. here, but none of them write about Spartanburg. Um, and and I'm, I always wondered, you know, why is it Greenville got, got – um, um, all the great novelists that are over there, um, and Spartanburg didn't didn't get anybody who wanted to write about this place. And so one of the things that drove me to listen for the stories was I really wanted to to weave these stories into a, a fictional place and see what um, see what people thought of it. And as you know, with my first novel, you know, it sold really well in Spartanburg, <laughs> um, and. That that was really nice for, for us all. <laughs> yeah, 
Spartanburg was clearly hungry for a, a novel about itself, about its, about its own sense of place. And that, too, speaks to advice that Conroy gave to writers all the time, to find that place that you can make your own, that you are uniquely qualified to tell stories about. And, and Spartanburg and its fictional counterpart are very much that for you. We've mentioned uh, Fate Morland's Widow or Fate Morgan's Window a couple of times now, and uh, th- there are there are some very intentional um, carry forwards from that novel. Some landmarks, some names, some canes getting mentioned. Yeah. We see the the mill from the first novel sort of still haunting the landscape, and as well as well. Yeah. But uh, were there other things that you you intentionally put in there, or maybe accidentally just sort of showed up on their own, carried over from well, one I've novel got one to the joke. other? I've got one joke that I've now carried forward for two novels, and that's that my friend Venable Vermont, who's the main character in the nonfiction book, My Paddle to Sea, um, mm-hmm. he's sort of my natty bumpo in, in that, that story. And he lives in Alaska, but he's from a lo- family that's lived a long time in Spartanburg. And his, his father shows up fishing uh, in, in, a, in a boat on, on Lake um, Whitney and Peyton Morland's widow. And um, and I stuck him in this one as well. I, I referenced him when um, Jay has stopped at the taxidermy shop, and um, they're talking about deer hunting, and they're talking about the Vermont property up on Little Thickety Creek. And uh, so I'm I'm working to try to figure out how I'm going to stick Venable in the next book. But um, that was that was fun um, to put this on. I got that actually from my friend George Singleton, who always puts Ron Rash in every book. So. Um, <laughs> So I'm, I'm, trying, and, I'm trying to get Venable Vermont. Into, isn't that the greatest <laughs> literary name? <laughs> it really is. It seems like a completely made-up name. I did not believe it was a real person the first time you mentioned him, and, and nonetheless he is. <laughs> uh, but do you remember But um, the mill's there. There are people there, but um, I, 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 there are probably more. Um, well, Mama Crocker, you know, that's a name that shows – Crocker's a name that shows up in the – in the yeah, first novel. I was wondering about that too. Um, it's not just the King name, but the Cocker name. Exactly. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, we mentioned earlier some, some loose parallels between the villains from both novels too, Angus and, and Darren. And I think there are some parallels between um, between Jay and not the hero of Fate Morland's Widow, not the protagonist, not Ben Cocker, uh, Cocker but another character, Olin Campbell, uh, in some ways, oh, yeah. reminded me of Olin. They're they're both former. I mean, they, they've had their moments of glory as athletes, and now those are past them. And they're both really connected to the land in which they occupy. Is that intentional, or are those just themes that are important to you that present themselves? I have never thought about that, Jonathan, until this moment. That they both are athletes. That they both, you know, there's the fishing scene with Olin Campbell and in Fate Morn's Widow, and mm-hmm. um, and um. But I imagine that they're just so deeply rooted in, in who I am and what I care about that that they just come out in these characters. But I I will say that I did it intentionally and that <laughs> that I have no Take credit for it. <laughs> yes. That was very That's what good readers are supposed to do. <laughs> Let's talk about the title, uh, because you told me uh, that this is not the original title, but uh, the title uh, no. is probably a line that's going to be familiar to a lot of people from Robert Frost's poem, Stopping by the Woods on a Snowy Evening. When and how did that, and why did that become the title? Well, I, um, I originally called the novel The Last Stand, 
Um, and I think it had one other not title in between that. As you remember from Fate Moreland, um, that was not the original title of that either. I had like three or four others. And, um, and, and I worked, um, and I kept working toward this, this frost line. And I was, I, I was thinking it was going to be a placeholder title for a while because I thought, man, I can't use that line because it's still in copyright and I'm going to get sued by the frost estate. Um, if I if I do this, but then my timing was perfect because the poem went out of copyright um, last year, and so now oh, it's going to be on t-shirts yeah. and coffee mugs and everything else. And and so I um I got to be one of the first novelists to be able to use use this. I'm sure there'll be other novels called Whose Woods These Are, but I've always loved that phrase, and and I've always loved the talking with students about why the the syntax is kind of skewed and, and um, why he didn't say whose woods are these. And, um, and, and I've just always loved that kind of the way that it, that, that it puts the emphasis on that word are whose woods these are. And, um, and um, I knew that it would also point like a big fat finger to the theme of the, the novel, which is this kind of, um, is, are the woods Jays? Are the woods Doc Pagano's because he owns them? Um, are the woods um, the, the sheriffs because he um, he controls them through through his you know through his manhunt? Um, are they Caddy's woods because she painted them? Um, do they belong to the past? Do they belong to the natural world? Um, um, I mean, you know, these human beings are going to pass away and they're going to be woods there for forever. Um, and um, so anyway, I wanted the, the title to kind of point like that to the to these themes. It's very effective because it's a question that presents itself over and over in the novel. Who has the right to be where? Who has the right yeah. to uh, be present in these woods? And how far backward in time does that go for a particular family? How far forward will it go? We've got uh, a young character uh, Jay's daughter Tess, and, and there are even questions about, you know, what will be hers, what, what life will be hers, but what land will be hers as well. And, and not yeah. to give away twists of the novel, but we learn over time that, that these families are a bit more intertwined than perhaps they suspect when they enter the woods. Yes, yes, that that's um that's a big part of the story, and um, I really had a great time with this plot. I hope that you know you 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 read a lot of plot, Conroy. Story River theories, and um, I just I hope that I that I showed some of the same um, gifts for plotting that I did with Fate Moreland's Widow because every week I get asked about the end of that novel, and and um, and I really enjoyed the the end of this one as well. Oh, absolutely! It delivers on the end. Certainly, it delivers on the promise of, of the whole work. I'm really interested in your your um, your plan to compress the events to a single day, that this whole thing had to unfold <laughs> on, a, on a day. Was that a challenge you gave yourself, or did you always know that that, that was going to be the structure of this particular novel? Well, I knew if I kept old Doc in the woods more than a day, I could kill him. Um, and <laughs> and I, had that, I had that as a, that is a sort of outline um, limit on, on the time. And I also, I, I saw it as a challenge, and I knew that a lot of cool things could happen in a day and that I could really have fun with. Um, 
somebody, um, 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 some, one of the reviews I've gotten called what happened over that day like a, a pinball machine, that it's just pinballing mm-hmm. all over the woods. And, and I wanted that effect. I wanted that sense that everything was being crammed into a small space. And I knew I had to get him out of the woods by dark, so I also had, had that that I was working with. But it starts very early in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It's an early day. Let's let's uh, let's certainly give you credit for packing in as many hours as you could to that day. Uh, well, this might be a good point uh, to drop in a second reading. Uh, I know you've got one in mind for us about an, uh, yeah. uh, for an interaction between two characters, and that'll lead us to some other points too. So, if you would, uh, yeah. by all means, jump in. Okay, so I'm going to jump forward about. Um, about 30 pages into the um, the first J chapter in his point of view from first person. Um, and it's early in the morning and he's gone out deer hunting and he has discovered um, that he's found the deer he wanted to, to shoot. Um, but, and he shoots it. But when he shoots the deer, he suddenly um, in, um, in, encounters this old man that he has met one other time and he's also met the old man's son he's had a really bad incident with the old man's son and um but he he sort of admires the old man um and and the one encounter he had with him was pretty good so he's kind of shocked when when this one turns bad but so he's um he's he's walked down to where he shot this deer and he's got a four-wheeler with him and um the um the old man shows up um and um, the old man says, you leave that deer where it lays. It's ours. Deer is headed to my freezer if I can get it up on my four-wheeler. How about putting that rifle down and giving me a hand? Who the hell do you think you're talking to? I moved quickly from spooked to mad. Do you know who I am? The old man didn't answer. Jay Mitchell, remember? That's our deer. My grandson shot it. The old man says again, you leave it alone. Your grandson, back there, he points with the barrel of his rifle. It's his first hunt. He's 12 years old. I squint. I can't see anybody in the deer stand. I've heard his grandson has shot plenty of deer. He's Caddy's age. Caddy's his girlfriend. In his early 20s, not a child anymore. Doc, are you okay? You need some help? Leave that deer laying. Old Doc waves his gun around. It's my grandson. I shot this deer, I say slowly. You watched me with your binoculars. Keep loading that deer on that four-wheeler, the old man says. He inches closer, pulls his rifle up to his shoulder, and aims it point blank at my face. I put my hands up, just like an outlaw. Hold on now, Doc. This is my four-wheeler. You hold on. You're trespassing on my property. You're the one trespassing, I say. You're on my uncle's property. Your line's down there by the river. This is my property, as far as you can see, and that's my grandson's deer. He holds the rifle up higher. Over my dead body, you're stealing his deer. You load it up and drive it over there. Just hold on, I say. I climb slowly up the feet of my four-wheeler with the deer's antlers in both hands again. I heft hard until the deer slides up on the rack behind the driver's seat. That's right. 
you pull it up there and strap it on. I pulled out my utility straps from under the seat and passed it back and forth across the animal's body until the carcass is secure. I torque it. Drive it on down there to that stand. I don't understand what we're doing, but I do what he says. Driving the four-wheeler slowly in low gear off the ridge to their tree stand, the old man walks behind with his rifle. When we get to the stand, I climb down. I don't see your grandson anywhere around, I say. This tree stands empty. It's none of your business about my grandson, he says. To hell with you, old man, I say. What are you doing? Shoot me, I say. And I turn around on the seat and take out my knife. Put that knife away. He waves the gun around, holding the deer, and the animal sloughs off the rack and into the dust around the tree under the tree stand. This is it. This is as far as I'm putting up with your bullshit. Old Doc waves the gun in the air wildly. Strap my deer back on that rack. That's my four-wheeler. I climb down and take a quick step forward, surprising him, grabbing the barrel of the rifle and pushing it down. Old Doc pulls the trigger and shoots into the dirt, just missing my foot, making me even madder. Son of a bitch! I push back harder on the barrel. Old Doc lets it go and the gun flies away. Just like that, the old man falls and his head bounces against the tree holding the stand. He sprawls spread eagle on the ground before he, before me and looks like a lifeless bag of bones staring up at the sky. I realize how fragile the old man is. How, it is, that his, how is it that his family has left him out in the woods alone? Doc! I lean over, but the man isn't moving. His eyes are open, but he isn't focusing on anything I can see. I lean close to the old man's face, pull up the collar of his hunting jacket, and see blood on the back of my hand. Doc, I ask. I try to wipe the blood away. Old Doc finally looks around and sits up. I step back. You okay? I ask one more time. He's dazed. I said, are you okay? Then I hear a four-wheeler in the bottom. That's your grandson, Doc? I don't know who it is. Who is it, he asked, like it's some sort of children's game. Then suddenly he turns a corner and he's out of his mind again with the same look in his eyes he had before, the one that made him look like a crazy river rat. He stares frantically in all directions. Where the hell am I? Who are you? That's my gun and my deer. Where are my grandchildren? Where's my son? He touches the back of his head and falls on the ground again. Holding the head, holding his head with both hands. Hey, why does my head hurt so much? I haven't thought about the man's son in a long time, and I want to avoid doing it now, but I can't. I remember the scene with Darren Pagano. He'll shoot first if he sees me standing over his father. Old Doc stares me, stares at me like he thinks I might just know some answer he's waiting for. The four-wheeler sounds too close for comfort. You hit your head, Doc. That's all, I say. I leave the deer lying there, straddle the four-wheeler, and I drive away. It's a powerful scene. You get so much mileage out of dialogue, not just in that scene, but, but throughout the novel. Anytime two people are, to, are together, somebody's always trying to get the upper hand. It's always tense. It's, it's pretty remarkable what you're able to get uh, just out of, of folks talking. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and uh, the immediacy of the whole thing, not just in this scene, but throughout the novel. Um, did you always know you were going to write it in present tense, or did that present itself along the way? Oh, God. Um, 
I changed the tent on that middle section back and forth about three times. I had the whole thing mm. in third person. Um, I, I turned, took it out. I took the whole novel out of third person. Person, I would just go back and forth. And I finally, in the end, decided that for the immediacy, I, I really needed to to put it back in the first. And um, and I'm glad I did. It works beautifully. You you really always feel like you're in the moment with these characters. Never quite sure what's going to happen next, uh, which is which is the great strength of being in present tense through this uh, through this whole day. You know, you you feel the hours going by. You feel the the sun moving through the sky because it's happening in the same moment with you. Uh, and the other thing that I, I noticed that really jumps out at me in that scene and in many others as well is Jay as the sort of quintessential American woodsman. You mentioned uh, that Venable, Vermont, is the Natty Bumpo in your real life. But in the book, we get references <laughs> to Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett yeah. and even Huck Finn, although it's a, a bit of a stretch to uh, put him in, into that model. But is this, a, is this a character, a kind of character, a type of character that fascinates you in that way, that you knew was going to be a part of these woods and the story? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I feel like I, I'm comfortable in the woods. I, I love being in the woods, but I'm no Venable Vermont. Um, I, I go camping and paddling with Venable a lot, and he's the one who's always, you know, knows exactly what to do. He's been in every situation, and I'm, I'm there, but I'm, I'm, not, that, I'm not that character. Um, and, um, and, but I've always been fascinated by those characters. In the same way, I think that um, a good parallel to that is um, – Lewis Medlock in Deliverance, um, the character um, mm. that Burt Reynolds mm-hmm. played. Um, you know, he's um, he's not James Dickey. James Dickey is more the the um, the, the the Gentry Lewis Gentry, I mean, um, Ed Gentry character, the one who climbs the cliff, and um, and he's he's sort of the one who watches Lewis and is 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 amazed by Lewis's ability and and um, and I've always um. I've always felt that way, and I've always felt in that in that same way. I don't know who I am in this novel. Um, I felt much more like more like Ben Crocker in in Who's Woods. I mean, in um, Fate Morgan's Window. Um, but um, but I don't know who I am in this novel. I um, I do feel like there's some of me in Jay, um, and I do feel like there's some of me in the sheriff, and even maybe even in Caddy. Um, I don't feel like there's much of me in Darren, but I, I don't think there's one person in this novel, one character that I can say, oh, this is autobiographical, and that, that's me, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And I kind of like I kind of like working that way. Yeah, you know, I think our friend Wiley Cash would agree, too, uh, who wrote the, uh, the foreword to Fate Morland's Widow. Uh, he always says that he's, he's the least likely person you're ever going to see in one of his novels because he – doesn't want to be in there. He doesn't want to be in the way of the characters or to feel vulnerable and, and naked on the page, writing autobiographically the way that the Pat Conroy did. But I think you're, you're right. There are bits and pieces of you, or at least the you that I know in Jay and, and in Sheriff Howard, and certainly in Caddy too, who's experiencing the yeah. woods as an artist. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Tell, tell me a little bit more about the, uh, the creation of Caddy, the development of Caddy. Did you always know she was going to oh. have this Faulknerian name and have this, uh, this, visual eye uh, for the world, this artist's eye for the world, or did that present itself along the way too? She always had the name. I knew that I wanted to plant um, a few Faulkner clues in the novel. 
um, in order to sort of tip off, tip off the building of a world, but also um, to just try to make people think about um, what are the themes of the Southern ride. I always, I always told people that with this book, I wanted to write a Faulkner novel that wasn't written with Faulkner no, language um, because I couldn't mm-hmm. do that. I couldn't mm-hmm. write a page long. Although I do feel like that some of the lyric passages are as, are, are would stand with some of the passages of the bear or some of the other things. But, but um, I always knew that she would be catty. Um, I, I, I probably cut 40 pages worth of material about catty that, that sort of developed her even more as an artist. Um, and, and so that, that idea that she was going to be an artist, um, for whatever reason, was always there. I knew that, that that would be a part of her her character. I wanted to be frustrated, and, you know, she she has to drop out of college because of, of her pregnancy, and I didn't want her to be an accountant, you know, that had to drop out. I wanted her to have something that she could maybe pick back up at some point easily. Mm. She, uh, she brings a lot of heart to this story, and we feel that the tension of her situation, her loyalty to Jay, her her duty to her job, and her connections to this land and the stories of this land too. She comes, uh, comes across as a really compli- complicated, excuse me, but also always fully formed character too. And, and mm-hmm. it's a great joy to discover her on these pages. Uh, we've got one other, one other character or type of character that we've not really mentioned yet, uh, but I would not be doing justice to being uh, seated in Pat Conroy's chair if we didn't talk about dogs a little bit, too. Because Pat had very specific advice for what to do with the dog in Faye Moreland's Widow, uh, which you did not take. But now we've got all kinds of dogs here in uh, yeah. whose woods these are. So tell me a little bit about where the dogs come from. Well, the hunting dogs come come out of two places, one of it real and one fictional. The real place they come out of is my book, Coyote Settles the South. One of the mm-hmm. chapters in Coyote Settles the South, I go to the Piedmont of North Carolina up near Charlotte, and I spent a night, all night, out with these fox hunters. Now, these are not tally-ho fox hunters. These are not dress up in suits and jump over fences with horses, fox hunters. These are old Piedmont farmers who sit around fires and turn their dogs loose and listen to them run the foxes. Now they run coyotes as often as they run foxes. But these people's worlds have been destroyed by suburbia and deer hunting on um, interstate highways. And um, there's one intact fox hunting group up near Charlotte that a friend of mine, Richard Rankin, um, knew about, and he invited me up to spend the night out with them doing a fox hunt, and I wrote an entire chapter about this um, in my Coyote book that came out from Georgia a few years ago, and the, the joy of being in those woods and listening to those dogs was something I'll never forget. And I knew that I wanted to try to work those dogs somehow into this novel and my memory of those hunting dogs, those, those hounds out chasing those foxes. Um, the other dog, I don't know where that dog comes from, the caddy feeds. I, that dog just came out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. 
But I know that it's sort of a parallel theme-wise with Caddy and her situation, you know, the the dog trying to feed her babies and, and all this. But right. but that, yeah. dog just kind of, that dog just kind of showed up. I've got a funny story about a third. You know the little pit bull in the, in the story? That yeah. the little pit bull that runs with the hounds? Well, that is that story of that pit bull is an exact story that Phil Wilkinson told me down on the coast of South Carolina. That actually happened to him. And he told me that story, and I wrote it down in great detail. And then mm-hmm. um, I told him, I said, Phil, I'm going to use your story in a book, and he didn't hear me. Um, and then I sent him the book a couple of weeks ago, and he called me and he said, John, there's a story in this book that sounds exactly like something that happened to me. And either you had any, had this thing happen to you, and it was exactly the same, or you are using that story that I gave you. And I said, yeah, Phil, if you'll flip to the to the um, acknowledgments, I I say that. And I and I told you I was going to use this story when you told it to me, and then he started laughing. And I thought of Pat. <laughs> <laughs> didn't Pat have a didn't Pat have a habit of lifting stories from his friends and to stories about tigers and stuff like that? <laughs> he, he did. He was a great borrower, collector of stories, and he would always say, consider that story stolen whenever he heard a good one. Uh, he would do that in book signing lines as well, too. If you ever got a good story from a reader, consider it stolen. And then you would you just have to wait a couple of years and you would see it in the next Conroy bestseller. Yes. Wow. Well, well it worked. Pat, Pat, hey, it worked. It did. Yes, absolutely. No, it's a good story, well stolen, and I hope Phil appreciates seeing it in there. Since we've uh, interjected Mr. Conroy into our conversation here, uh, let me mention that Pat used to refer to you as Chattooga Man, which I always enjoyed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But in your essay in Our Prince Describes, you wrote a little bit about what it was like to, to be on book tour with Pat in support of your first novel, uh, Fate More Owns Widow, which is by no means your first book. Let's point out that Mount Lane, your, your stack of books, as you refer to it, uh, was quite high by that point. You were, you were a well-established, much-beloved writer when the first novel came out. But would you talk a little bit about what it was like to be part of Pat's circle, part of the, the Story River family for that, uh, for that first novel experience? Wow. It was remarkable. I I did not know what to expect. I had never been um, I'd never been in a place, um, a, an event, a book event where you were inside and the thing was supposed to be to celebrate you, and there were people mashed against the windows <laughs> to get a <laughs> glimpse of Pat Conroy, like we had at Furman that time. And um, yeah. I just loved it. I loved the way Pat gave so much to us. Um, I will never forget. I think I mentioned this in my essay. Um, um, we were sitting in Atlanta um, at dinner after an event at a Baptist church down there. And um, it was late at night and we we're all tired and all hungry. And I got seated next to Pat. There were four or five of us there. And, you know, we were talking and having a good time. And um, Pat in the middle of that reached over and grabbed me by the arm. And he said, I just want you to remember one thing, John. You wrote a great book. And mm-hmm. and I will never forget that. Um, that he meant it meant enough to him to reach out. Um, he didn't have to do any of that. 
as you know. <laughs> but he reached out, and he was so good to all of us, and he always put us up first, even though he knew and we knew that most of the people in that audience were there to get a glimpse of him and to hear him talk. Um, but he celebrated our books. He celebrated us, and, and I'll never forget it. And it, it meant so much Indeed. to us. It meant so much to him, too, and it really uh, shined through in, in the public appearances and in those small moments that he tried to have with every single one of the Story River writers, as he did with you. And I, I talk about that uh, that day at Furman uh, quite a bit in some of the lectures I give to really get to the heart of what that experience meant to Pat and, and what it meant to a, a lot of the folks in Story River. I think that was our friend Eric Morrissey's very first book event ever. So as far yeah. as he knew, yeah. you know, 300 people were going to show up every single night because 300 people were there that <laughs> night. And, and, and Pat came up to me multiple times before, uh, before we went on stage. And he said, his name's Eric Morris, right? Because he loved his novel, but he had never met Eric before. His name's Eric Morris, right? And I said, yeah, Pat, it's Eric Morris. You know that. Well, as you might remember, Pat gets up there and he introduces Earl Morris. And Eric is so happy to be on stage with his hero, Pat Conroy, he just doesn't correct him. So for an hour, he was Earl Morris, uh, who is a real guy, a filmmaker. I mean, Pat didn't pull that out of the air. He just got it wrong. But what I most remember about that night and and what I love sharing with people is what it was like to sit with Pat at the signing table afterwards. Because, you know, for the first hour and a half of this three-hour Conroy signing, it's people bringing up copies of Pat's book. And many of them they had brought from home. They didn't purchase that night. And that was fine. He was was happy to do what he always did and have these five-minute wonderful conversations with everybody. But about an hour into the signing, after those people kind of filtered out, people started coming up and asking Pat to sign copies of your book, of Story River books. And that's what really meant the most to him tonight. He was so proud to see that, you know, the experiment was working. He was turning his readers into your readers, which was the point of him being there, not to talk about himself, but to talk about all of you. And I got to see what that was like for him. And it was just a magnificent experience for him as it was for all of us. It was a fabulous experiment. I'm just sad, and we all are sad. It had to end so so tragically and early. Um, we we all wish that Pat would live would have lived to be 90. You know, he would have enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> he would have indeed. Uh, I mentioned Mount Lane, your stack of books, and I want to circle back around yeah. to that uh, as well. In a virtual event a couple of weeks ago, I asked you uh, how many books are in that now, and I do not remember your answer, but I, I definitely want to ask you again. How many books are there, uh, to John Lane's credit, with I your think, file on? Jonathan, I think that it's 18 books with an ISBN. You know, I've got a lot of sort of literary chat books and things, too, but but um, I think it's 18 full, full books now, which um, – when I think about somebody like Donald Hall, it doesn't seem like very many. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, but I have had an incredible, um, wonderful run of luck here the last 20 years. Um, it's been pretty remarkable. I was a little worried, you know, when I was in my 30s, 20s and 30s, um, um, that I was not going to find my way into publishers who, who wanted to publish me? Um, I had a couple of publications from small presses, but but um, but then when it started happening, it's been um, been pretty 
pretty exciting ever since. Well, with that in mind, here's the Mount Wayne, indeed. Here's the question I want to ask you with the uh, last couple of minutes that we have here in the program tonight. Very often in these interviews, whether on a podcast or in person with writers, I always ask for folks to give some advice uh, for young writers, but that's not exactly what I want to ask you. I want to ask you for some advice for older writers, for folks who who, uh, maybe haven't crossed that threshold yet, have been living their life and doing everything else that they needed to do, but have always had that dream and just kept sort of kicking it downfield. Because I meet a lot of those folks here in Beaufort uh, and elsewhere as well. And I'd love to hear what advice you might offer uh, to folks in that category. Well, um, the advice I always give people is, um, is sort of Pat's advice, which is, you know, just, you know, follow your passion and, and finish these manuscripts and then find whatever way you can to publish that first book. You know, Pat self-published his first book. And, um, and you know, my, my first book came out with these tiny, tiny presses. I, I used to always make a joke and say that, that – um, with my first book of poems, I thought that I was going to have, that I was like a student who was going to end up at Harvard, you know, and I ended up instead, you know, just part-time at the community college because I, I just couldn't quite figure out how to get into the system. Um, but I, but I was persistent and um, I kept at it and I kept, um, I kept submitting things. And then where I found my way, I've never had a book from a New York publisher all of my books have been from either small presses or university presses, and those university presses have stood by me, and um, and and it's been great. And it's not the kind of life that most writers dream of. And I would say follow your passion and get published whatever way you can, and then let your Robert Frost line lead you. Way leads on to way. Um, once you get that publication, then you figure out where the next step is, and um, then you then you figure out what your next story is or what your next poems are. But don't get caught up in the trap of what it means to be a writer is to have a book from Paris Strauss and Giroux. Um, maybe you're going to get lucky and be there someday, but that's not the route of most people. Um, most people um, find someone who... Um, who loves their work and is willing to publish them, but it might not be who you expected it would be. That would be my advice. Just do it, yeah. like Nike. <laughs> Sound advice and, uh, and and the voice of experience as well, because you found your way to some really wonderful small presses, university presses as well, as you mentioned, yeah. who've been very supportive of you over a long period of time. Mercer and George are certainly two of them and, and others as well. So what is the next book? Yep. What is most likely to be added to Mount Lane well, next? Well, I, I have a couple in the works that are coming out. Um, I mentioned um, that Mercer University Press is bringing out my paperback of Fate Moreland's Widow. It'll be out in January. And then a year from January, they're going to bring out a book of essays um, that are the, all of the essays that I wrote around the time that I was beginning to think through these animal themes. You know, I had two animal books in a row. I had from Georgia, and then I did Neighborhood Hawks from Georgia, where I followed hawks for a year in my neighborhood. And I wrote a bunch of sort of standalone essays about animals during that time. 
and I'm I'm going to publish a book with Mercer called um, um, Coming into Animal Presence and Other Essays, um, and it will be sort of the third of the trilogy of animal books that I will have done. And then, I, like I said, I've got a couple more novels in the works. Um, I'm hoping I can get those put to bed. And I've also got a couple of books of poems that um, I'd like to publish, including the long poem that I read parts of at the Pat Conroy birthday celebration about the flood of the Packlet River in 1903. That's that's a book I want to publish. So we'll see if oh, we can get I do that. So yeah, I'm pretty busy. I always wondered what... <laughs> You are always uh, impressively so. Retirement seems to suit you, John Wayne. Um, disappointed to say we're about out of time here on the show, so I want to thank our guest, John Lane, uh, for coming and talking to us about his new book, newly available for Mercer University Press, Whose Woods These Are, available at fine independent bookstores everywhere and certainly at Hub City in Spartanburg. And this is a quick reminder that here in Beaufort, we've got our virtual Pat Conroy Literary Festival coming up this November 5th through the 8th, Thursday through a Sunday. You can go to our website, patconroyliterarycenter.org, to find out more about that. John, thank you so much for being on the program here this, this evening. And again, congratulations on your brand new and spectacular novel. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for everything you've done for me and for um, everything you've done for um, Pat Conroy Center, and I look you. I, I, I hope you have um, a good, um, a good rest of the fall. Thank you. We're looking forward to it here, and, and I know Pat would be very proud to see this uh, this return to Morgan County, South Carolina, out in the world. I wish <laughs> you continued luck with it. Thanks.